have a lot of impact of technology, and I think uh, at the end of every year, I sort of go back and look at what's happened during the past year. And I remember I did this in December of 2016, and I could palpably feel the speed at which things were speeding up. And I feel like this is something we're all going to be facing. My mom used to say that the world is getting faster, and I think that we're living in a time where what is possible is speeding up at such an accelerating rate uh, that it's going to challenge our sense of stability. One of the things that's changing as well is the cost of things. And so uh, we talk a lot about the notion that uh, technology is going to cause us to lose our jobs, lose our income. But there is a countervailing force that's going on right now at the same time, which is the demonetization of living. And I'd like to chat a little bit about that. And this is more to give you a sense and a feeling of, uh, of something that perhaps you already know is happening, but to give you a way of looking at the world differently. So I believe we're rapidly moving towards a world where all of these things that we use, that we need to be alive, if you would, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, are very rapidly trending towards zero cost. And it's going to change capitalism in a very fundamental fashion. So there's models for what this looks like, and one of the best models, believe it or not, is the early Star Trek world. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek, viewed that world as being sort of post-capitalism, where money had very little use, very little value, until the Ferengi appeared in Next Generation and screwed that all up. But at the end of the day, in a world in which technologies like the replicator exists, their ability to actually create something and have something where scarcity no longer exists, where everything becomes abundant, changes the whole economic sphere of our world. One of the technologies that is sort of in the horizon that's taking us in that direction, of course, is the whole notion of nanotechnology, nanobots. And this is sort of the Eric Drexlerian view of the future. And I know companies, uh, Ray Kurzweil and I advise a company that's working in this specific area. And it's extraordinary to see where it can go in the not-too-distant future, like the next 20 years, 30 years at the outmost, where if I have a nanobot and I ask it to replicate itself 500 times and I give you each one of those nanobots, you then have the ability to create anything you literally want that is a function of only three things, the energy, the raw material cost, and the cost of the information. And so we're living in a world where you can have a Ferrari, a mansion, or a literally anything for near zero cost. So that's sort of, if you would, the boundary condition that we're heading towards. We are, in effect, heading towards a world where a lot, not all things, but a lot of the basic things of life are going to be at near marginal cost. And a lot of what's driving this is the fact that we have faster, cheaper computers that are fundamentally driving a whole slew of technologies. And as these, tech, as these computers trend towards faster and faster capabilities, you've seen this chart a thousand times from Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, those technologies are all getting faster. And what we're seeing is what I call the six Ds of exponential growth. 
that we're going from a world where it used to look like this to a point where everything is becoming dematerialized, demonetized, and democratized. And as we dematerialize things, as things go from hardware to bits, and the marginal cost of those replicating those bits is near zero, and the marginal cost of transmitting those bits is near zero, we end up in a very interesting world. So literally, if you think about it, uh, in the back of abundance, I go and I, and I add up what the cost of the various applications in my phone were just 20 years ago, right? Video, video camera, still camera, two-way video conferencing equipment, radio, if you would, TV through YouTube, all of those things. And on the average smartphone that you might microfinance in Africa for $50, on that $50 microfinance smartphone is millions of dollars worth of hardware, millions of dollars worth of capabilities that we would have paid for just 20 years ago. And so we're heading very rapidly towards a world of dematerialization. And what I'd like to do is just take a second and look at these different fields to look at how they're being dematerialized and how they're being demonetized. So, of course, in communications and entertainment, we've seen a massive amount. Uh, here are the numbers on communications. In 2010, we had 1.8 billion people connected on the planet out of roughly 7 billion. Today, it's roughly 3 billion people connected out of roughly 7.5 billion. By 2020 to 2025, we're going to have the explosion of a number of global networks. We've got Loon through Google. We've got Facebook with drones and satellites. We've got OneWeb by Greg Weiler and Richard Branson and Paul Jacobs that's launching a 900 satellite constellation delivering 400 megabits per second worldwide. You've got SpaceX and Elon Musk filing for a 4,425 satellite constellation. Effectively, what we're doing over the next you know, five to eight years is bringing five billion new consumers online. And these five billion new consumers are coming online at a marginal incremental communications cost. And they're coming online not like you and I did at, you know, with AOL at 9600 baud. They're coming online at a megabit to a gigabit per second. And interestingly enough, the question, okay, they're going to have connectivity, but they're already going to have these kinds of devices. And at the end of the day, my expectation is they will, and most people will have them for free. Because as the cost of these devices get down to 10 bucks or 20 bucks, unless you have one, I can't sell you anything. So I'm going to give you one of these devices so that you can buy things from me. Or... The other thing I might get if I give you one of these devices is I get to collect the data. I get to collect and understand what you want because data is the new gold. So we're heading towards a world of ubiquitous global connectivity where the cost of that connectivity and the cost of the hardware is marginally approaching zero. We also have on the entertainment side, of course, we've had an explosion on YouTube. This is 2014, 300 hours of video per minute. In 2015, it grew to about 500 hours per minute. But this is interesting, right? YouTube today serves up a billion hours of free content per day. So we're living in a world where communication is marginally free, where entertainment is marginally free. You heard a great presentation, those of you in the room, um, from Ramez Nam, and I'll just cover a few of these points. But 
You know, we're living in a world where we have 8,000 times more energy hitting the surface of the earth from the sun than we consume as a, in a species. And as it turns out, the poorest countries in the world are the sunniest countries in the world. An interesting lineup there that shouldn't be lost on you. And as we look at this, you know, uh, 2016, the year that renewables were cheaper than coal, right? Coal will not ever recover. Uh, 25% of the world's uh, power last year uh, came from renewables. Nations around the world are fully divesting from oil and gas. Scotland, 106%. Costa Rica, well over a year running on renewables. Germany in, in April hit 85% of its electricity um, from renewables. You heard this from Hermes as well. India only sell electric cars by 2030. As I fly, I'm a pilot, and as I fly over L.A., when I look down over L.A., I don't see the farms of photovoltaics or the farms of solar thermals. You see rooftops and you see, uh, you see tar. And, of course, what's interesting is that we're going to turn all of those areas into solar collecting, right? This is a kilometer of solar road deployed in Normandy and Tesla selling its solar rooftops. You saw these numbers, the actual number now that Ramez mentioned at 2.4 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, and, of course, to have abundant near-free energy, you need storage. Now, this is the Gigafactory out near Reno. Uh, that's not news, but the fact that Elon's prediction that 100 of these Gigafactories worldwide give us all the storage we need for a fully electric economy is pretty significant. Let's look at transportation. Uh, at Abundance 360 this year, I spent time with Jeff Holden. Jeff's a, a dear friend. He's a chief product officer at Uber. Uh, previously, he was a chief product officer at Amazon. He's very smart. And his prediction is that we'll have fully autonomous Ubers on the road within two years. This is pilotless, driverless, fully autonomous Ubers. And as part of that, that electric autonomous cars are 10 times cheaper than owning a car. So that's a fast, even if it's just five times cheaper, 10 times cheaper, all of a sudden becomes something that if you own a Maserati or own a, you know, a, a five series BMW, you're going to park your car, you're going to sell your car, you're going to park your car, you're not going to use your car. Because when you have an autonomous electric car that's that much cheaper, that's that much more convenient. It's like you don't use your old, well, most people don't use their old film camera. You put that away and you're using your cell phone. So, interestingly enough, the question is at what point are we going to see electric autonomous cars displace the cars on the road? Because I thought for the longest time oil and gas was going to be holding on only because gas cars stuck around for decades at a time. But this is a photograph from New York in 1904. And if you look at this, you can spot two cars, two automobiles on the road. And you can, I'm going to give you a chance to download all these photos at the end. By 1917, it was 100% switchover, right? We went from horse and buggy to automobiles because the value proposition was so much greater. And the question of when that midpoint took place, well, the Model T came out in 1908. Four years later, we, we crossed the midpoint. 
And so it's interesting, and the prediction right now with, you know, uh, with Tesla coming out, with Ford and GM coming out, with uh, Waymo now partnering with Chrysler and with Lyft, is that by 2025, car ownership will be dead. And so when you talk about the demonetization of living, all of a sudden your, co your cost of transportation, your cost of owning a car or being chauffeured, right? Forget about owning a car. If you, you know, your cost of being chauffeured around is coming down tenfold or more. I'm on the board of Hyperloop. Uh, you'll see some amazing news from Hyperloop very soon. Uh, again, just changing the landscape of transportation. And of course, autonomous aerial taxis, right? This year, we're seeing the birth of the flying car from, you know, Larry Page's passion with, with Alphabet and Kitty Hawk, with Airbus, with Uber. So the interesting thing, though, about autonomous cars and uh, aerial taxis isn't the fact that they're demonetizing transportation, which they are. They're also going to demonetize housing. So I live in Santa Monica, and my cost of real estate is extraordinary. And if I lived an hour away, my cost of a house, the same square footage, would be 10 times less. So imagine now that you can live any place, right? Because we've seen this incredible push of people moving into downtown cities, right? They move into the city because entertainment is there, because the, uh, the work is there. But imagine if you could live an hour away from the city but sleep on your commute in. Or if you're flying with an aerial transport, you're flying in just 15 minutes. So all of a sudden, we're demonetizing housing because we're living where it's cheaper but still have access to downtown cities. We're also going to start demonetizing housing because it's going to be cheaper to produce it. Let me share with you a short video uh, from Abundance 360 this year with Avi Reichenthal on 3D printed houses. This is the latest. It actually happened in Thailand. This is a full-size house being 3D printed in 10 hours. Wow. Uh, and and the, the, the speed and performance and intricate design that can be achieved now just boggles the mind. And this is at least, Peter, a 10x improvement over what we saw just a year ago. So, of course, labor is demonetizing, the labor to do repetitive tasks, the labor to stock boxes, the labor at the cashier. Um, and what we're seeing are robots like this. Let me just let me sh run this quick video and we'll talk about it. Non-expert can program and operate the robot. They're interacting side by side with the robot right in the manufacturing floor. So it's, they're directly manipulating the arm and, and easily training the robot. So it's a dramatic expansion of where robots can be used and who can use them. This is Baxter and Sawyer. And these robots come in at $4 an hour of cost, right? So the largest, menu, largest purchaser of these robots now is China because China wants to maintain itself as a manufacturing base. But as labor rates go up, the only way to do that is to replace labor by having robots. Education, uh, we're in the midst right now of a $15 million global learning X prize. This is $15 million funded by Elon Musk that asks a, an Android software package to take a group of children who are completely illiterate and take them from illiteracy to basic reading, writing, and numeracy in the course of 18 months. 
And my expectation is that in the very near future, and we're talking at most 10 to 15 years, the education of the poorest child in the world and the education of the son or daughter of a billionaire delivered by an AI will be, the, will be equivalent. So we're heading towards a demonetization of not just education, but the best education. Delivering the education in the child's language, appropriate for their culture, appropriate for their background, appropriate for what they want to become when they grow up. So we're going to see a demonetization of education, where instead of education costing us a fortune, education is available effectively for free in the long run. On the healthcare side, uh, we're going to see a massive demonetization of the cost of healthcare. So uh, this is out of Stanford. Uh, this is Sebastian Thrun's lab, in which what they've built is basically machine learning, deep learning protocols that can diagnose dermatological conditions better than a dermatologist, right? So I want you to imagine this is when uh, I have a venture fund, Bold Capital Partners, that's partnered with Singularity University. This is one of the investments we're looking at right this minute. But imagine in the near future that when you get into the shower in the morning to go and take your shower, you do a spin around like this, it captures you, and over the course of time, it's able to determine whether you have any kind of, you know, uh, basal cell carcinomas or uh, melanomas, whatever it might be. Of course, AI is going to be your diagnostician. Uh, you know, when I went to medical school years ago, I remember the moment in time where I thought I had the human body in my brain. There's no possible way in the world that any physician is going to be able to keep up with the amount of data being generated. Hundreds of gigabytes of data per person. It's not even feasible. And so we're going to see, this is of course Watson, and this is uh, just about six months ago when Watson uh, was able to diagnose a patient who had a rare form of leukemia that no physician could diagnose. And the way that Watson did this is it had ingested 20 million different clinical data sets and it was able to understand her diagnosis in context of 20 million others. Uh, we just awarded at the X Prize just a few uh, weeks ago the $10 million Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. Uh, this was the winning team, a family of physicians, uh, brothers out of Philadelphia, that came up with a technology called um, uh, DXER. And the, the goal here was a consumer usable system that could diagnose 15 different diseases. In the field of continuing health sciences, this is the cost of genome sequencing. You see Moore's Law in white over there, and you see that rapidly falling five times the rate of Moore's Law for genome sequencing. So in 2001, Craig Venter sequenced the human genome for $100 million. Today, the cost is $1,000. And a few months ago, Illumina, the primary company, announced its uh, equipment that will be sequencing the human genome for $100 in two hours. So we're seeing from 2001 to 2017 a million-fold decrease. Again, demonetization in genome sequencing. And as we all head towards a world where every baby is sequenced when they're born, all of us are sequenced, and all that phenotypic data is combined with the genome, we're going to start to actually predict what you're likely to come down with and stop you from coming down with it in the first place. 
the reason healthcare is so ridiculously expensive right now is when you walk into the hospital not feeling well and you get diagnosed, it's for something that's been going on for months or years, and perhaps it's too late to fix it. So imagine instead having medicine being predictive, preventative, personalized, based on your genome and based on massive data sets. So we're going to disrupt and demonetize healthcare by orders of magnitude. And of course, the final thing is surgery, and the idea that we're going to pay you know, high-priced human surgeons to go and cut us open is going to be an anathema, right? You're going to see a human coming at you, and you're going to say, oh, no, 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 I do not want that human touching me. Why? Any of you who ever need surgery, you have one question to ask. How many times have you done this surgery last week? That's the number one correlation between the success of a surgeon. If you find a surgeon who's doing 10 surgeries per day, that's your woman, right? That's the person that you want. And so when you find a robot operating system that's doing thousands of surgeries per day, and that robot is seeing your innards in ultra, in, you know, uh, in, in infrared, uh, in minute detail, and it's able to do a surgery perfectly because it's seen every variation, and the cost of that surgery is the cost of electricity and the capex of that, of that robot, the cost is going to demonetize to near zero again. So I just wanted to share, I view the world as rapidly demonetizing. Um, I see almost every area. I haven't talked about food. I haven't talked about a few other areas. And we see uh, demonetizing trends there as well. But, you know, if you look at it, one of the interesting analogies, and I'll, I'll close with this slide. So this is the slide of when Kodak lost the game, right? So this is film photography falling off a cliff. And we're going to see this with uh, gas cars falling off a cliff as autonomous electric cars take off. But, you know, this is back in 2011. And what's interesting is I projected it forward, and the, the number last year was 1.2 trillion, right? So we're going to start to see these kinds of, uh, of, of changes where we're demonetizing and changing the game around the world. Uh, if you'd like a copy of these slides, if you text uh, to that phone number your email and the keyword Diamandis, the system will, will read your email and it will read my name, last name, and send you these slides uh, to your email. So I'd love to take a couple of, uh, of questions for the last six minutes we have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the social dislocations that may be created by... Um, all, the introduction of all of these technologies. Yeah. So the big, the, the big challenge in the room, of course, is that, and so when I think about AI, I am not worried about the Terminator. I'm not worried about the notion that this advanced intelligence is going to, you know, uh, try and destroy us. I think that's a ridiculous assumption. I, I understand. I am worried about the fact that we're going to have a disruption of jobs from AI and robotics. And it's not the factoring of a disruption of jobs, it's the speed at which we're going to have that, that change, right? In, in, uh, in 1890, I'm sorry, in 1800, uh, or 1810, the exact number is, 83% uh, of Americans were farmers, right? And today it's less than 2%. Uh, so uh, it's the speed at which we have that. So I'm thinking about that a lot. I don't have an answer for that. I'm concerned that people are going to lose their jobs, and while we're going to have, I think, I think universal basic income is going to come in very strong, I think we're going to demonetize the cost of living, 
so that the cost of living, not living forever, not going to Mars, not doing the extraordinary things, living, uh, being healthy, having a great education, having access to amazing entertainment, all the things that, to, that would be what a billionaire can do today, you know, 30 years from now will be basic living. Um, I, I think that we're going to demonetize those things, but people are going to have, there's going to be uh, psychological impacts to losing my persona of when I ask you, what do you do? You tell me your career, you tell me your job. So how do we connect people? And so I've been working with uh, Tony Robbins, who's a, who's a dear friend, and talking about this. We have to change the story about who you are, what you stand for, what you do. But these are, these are the challenges we have to face. These are the kinds of conversations we talk about internal at Singularity University a lot. Thank you for that. Another question, please, in the back there. Hi there. Um, so you mentioned about uh, demonetization, and it occurs to me that there are certain things. What won't demonetize? I mean, I see, you know, you're co-living sort of the, the people that you spend time with on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you agree with that? And what else do you see as not demonetizing? So uh, I'm, I, that's a great question, right? And it might be a fun conversation over cocktails tonight, right? We're, we're seeing the de <clears throat> a lot of material things demonetized. So there's a company, for example, in uh, Silicon Valley that, that I've advised called D-Foundry that is basically has a machine that in one end comes methane, water, and electricity. At the other end comes perfect diamonds, right? So we're, me we're demonetizing diamonds, right? You're talking about the eventual potential for $5 a carat. Uh, we're going to demonetize platinum, right? One of my company's planetary resources, if we're able to go and last through those asteroids, and bring down the price of platinum like we brought down the price of, you know, aluminum used to be worth more than gold uh, and silver um, until we came up with the ability of ultralysis. So it's an interesting question. I don't know what we're going to either demonetize or change. So, for example, you know, the cost of a car is still the cost of a car. But when I don't have to, when I can timeshare it, it becomes demonetized. Airbnb is demonetizing real estate to some degree or my use of the real estate. So there's different stages and different levels of demonetization. Uh, but that's a great question and one I don't have easy answers for. Please, and then, yeah. Hi. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, part of my question is you know, you're talking about demonetization and automation um, and, and maybe, you know, what humans might do with all their time. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. What do you believe to be the, the critical skill of the future, what is going to be a critical skill that we would need to bring into to our future workforce? So, great question, and I'm asked this as a father. I have two six-year-old boys, and everybody says, "Like, what do you want to teach them? What do you want to do?" And so, it, we're we're entering into a world where we are all going to have AI software shells. I call it a software shell. It's an AI that is with you all the time, that surrounds you, that sees what you see, that hears what you hear, that reads what you read, that is monitoring your body, that you give permission to all of these things. It's right, it's Jarvis for Iron Man. And we're going to have a version of Jarvis within 10 years. And so ultimately, you know, it's not about memorizing facts anymore. It's not about memorizing things. And what I think one of the most important things that we're going to have is the ability to ask great questions. So what I focus with my children a lot and I focus with entrepreneurs a lot is asking great questions. 
right? It's a critically important skill. The other is going to is going to be uh, is going to be curiosity and creativity. I think a lot of what we're going to be doing is creating interesting virtual worlds that we're all going to be exploring in the in the future. But uh, it's it's going to become uh, one of the other things I think about is as AI becomes a dominant force, what is truly human is going to start to become teased out. Right when you look at the difference. And there will there be a difference? I don't know. Uh, time for one last question. Please. So do you see a problem in most algos being created by males? I'm sorry, say that again? Do you see a problem in most algos being created by males? Most what being created? A algorithm Algorithms. AI. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, that would be interesting. I have no idea. I'm all for women to be taking over the show and running and creating the algorithms. That'd be great. The question is going to be, do I see a problem when algorithms will be created by AIs? Um, right? Uh, computers, programming computers is sort of uh, a thing these days. So anyway, I... I I chose to talk about this because I think about this a lot. I think about the demonetization of living. I think about it as a countervailing force to loss of jobs partnered with UBI. But the psychological part of us humans and us needing to be proud of who we are and what we do and our place in society is one of the questions that we have to address. It's not for our kids. It's for us this, this decade, these next 10 years. So, uh, honor, pleasure. Thank you for joining us here, and have a great evening.
that was uh, way too gratuitous. <clears throat> the middle of the second half wasn't uh, wasn't too bad though. I liked it. It's kind of how jam sessions are though. You kind of have to waft through the muck to get to the uh, the good stuff. Now that was eight bars of my drumming looped. And then I recorded me jamming on the bass to the drum loop and uh, and then played live to the guitar. So um, that's what was live. And it didn't get recorded, which is fine because it's uh, just a jam. But you, oh, anchor listener, uh, did get to hear the guitar. So uh makes it special. Now, something I could do is go back and now jam over that stuff on drums and then it wouldn't have that loop drum sound, which, uh, I don't know. I believe we're all tired of that sort of thing, aren't we? But hey, it's better than a, a metronome. But it might be interesting to develop this. So maybe the next recording I'll do is the drums. And then I'll even record some guitars. And uh, it'll just be a jam. Record a jam session. I could get Ronnie to play some guitar on it too. And we'll have like dueling guitars. Reminds me of a joke. What did the deadhead say when he ran out of acid? This band sucks. You know, I always thought I would like to get one of those looper machines so you can loop your voice and do, you know, live tracking, I guess you would call it. Um, but now that I've seen so many people do it, I am glad that I never invested in that because it just has no soul. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a drummer. Yeah, recently I've been kind of succumbing to using a metronome and playing to in time. Um, but I don't know, I really like not playing to a metronome as well and letting the time flex or fluctuate. Well, if you listened through that, uh, thank you very much. And um, I hope you found it enjoyable on some level. <laughs>